Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. And let's get started with our very special guest in the, per, uh, in the pew, Brian Y. How are you? David, thanks for having me. I'm excited for my turn in the pew. Excellent. Uh, the it seems like the last time I've had you on a podcast, uh, we were trying to invoke a demon and give Matt gallstones. I will report that I spoke to Matt recently. No gallstones. Yeah, we've we've not had a lot of success invoking supernatural agents. I think we also tried the uh, the Holy Spirit, and uh, he was similarly uh, you know, persona non grata. So that, yeah, maybe maybe we should stick to. Stick to the natural. Maybe we should we should be doing with these. Maybe maybe I should have asked the Holy Spirit to give Matt gallstones. I mean, one of them should be able to manage that. People get gallstones all the time. It seems like a seems like an easy ask. But <laughs> and 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 to be honest, who who doesn't deserve gallstones more than Matt? I mean, give me a break. <laughs> as a person who's had gallstones and had them removed. Nobody deserves gallstones. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here we go. Uh, today we're going to do something very special. It's never been done on the internet. We are going to dissect a Darren Brown video. I mean, who does that guy think he is? He just gets away with stuff and skeptics just fawn all over him as if he were the voice of God. That ends today. Um, or not. <laughs> but we're going <laughs> to... But but we're gonna we're gonna listen to uh, one of the more popular videos that uh, Darren has done. I just want to make a brief statement before we get started uh, and let the audience know I wasn't actually looking to do a Darren Brown video today. I wanted to talk about conversion, the stuff of conversion, uh, because on the boards there's been an ongoing topic for a while about things like the senses divinitatis and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and, uh, you know, how, how you can tell whether you have that or not and why it happens to some people and not others. And apparently it's a very important part of the conversion process to some, uh, to some people. And it has been argued that uh, in such a way that uh, it kind of builds up a wall of protection around the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, because it's internal, it's about your own personal qualia, and so no one can really peer into that process at all. Like, they can't tell you whether it's legitimate or not, and they would be, in fact, overstepping to suggest that it wasn't legitimate, because how the heck would you know? The person experiencing it, that's the person who would know the uh, cause and nature of that experience, except Darren Brown suggests otherwise. Uh, so this did kind of come up organically. Like I said, I wasn't looking for Darren Brown. But when I found this, I, I realized how well this fit into the conversation uh, that we were already having. And so to round off my opening statement, which will probably be my closing statement, because I doubt that I will have any more uh, to say that's more inspired than this. Um conversion, it's one of those things that I've always been fascinated by, uh, even as a even as a child under the age of 10. Um, understand I was preaching at 12. I was a strange kid. Uh, but I've been fascinated by the idea 
of conversion. What brings people to conversion to a religious experience? What brings people out of a religious experience? What brings people from one religion to another? What explains this process of conversion? What about an atheist to becoming a, a Christian? How does this conversion thing even work? And on this side of faith, I skeptically hear Christians say that there's no way to actually have conversion, true conversion to Christianity without the work of the Spirit. This feels like special pleading to me, Brian, because we convert to things as humans all the damn time. Conversion is not a unique phenomenon to religion. If you convert to a Philadelphia Eagles fan, to a uh, Kansas City Chiefs fan, that's a serious conversion in the sports world. Uh, and it happens all the time. No spirit required. Uh, you might be converted from French food to Italian food as, as your favorite food. That's a conversion. As your tastes change, no spirit is required. Uh, you might convert from uh, one type of loyalty to another type of loyalty. Um, no religion required. You might convert from a person who uh, is a lying, cheating, no good son of a gun to someone who straightens up and flies right, but is not particularly religious. That's still a conversion. And yet, um, when it comes to converting to Christianity, suddenly we need this spirit thing involved to explain it. It feels wrong to me. It feels like there's a piece of the puzzle with regard to conversion that we are not factoring in in the Christian explanations. Don't do it for me. So we will have this conversation further as we listen to the Darren Brown video. But before we start it, you know the video that I'm talking about. Do you have any thoughts in your head before I hit play? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing from what angle he comes at it from, uh, because as you allude to, we've been having conversations on this on the boards for months. And, uh, you know, I have to admit to being frustrated how very, very, uh, we haven't even gotten down the pathway, right? We, we can barely get past step one with uh, these conversations with people who actually say that they do have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so hopefully we can move forward and go further down uh, this uh, analysis uh, than we've been able to so, so far. So I'm looking forward to it. All right, Darren, save us. Last week on Fear and Faith, I examined the placebo effect and proved just how powerful belief can be. I gave a number of people a fake drug, which was no more than a sugar pill, and by getting them to believe in it, they made dramatic changes in their lives. Tonight, I'm going to investigate what I think could be the biggest placebo of them all, God. I'm going to use experiments to show how religious experience can be explained by psychology. There's something definitely in here. Oh. And then I'll put that theory to the test by using that knowledge to give an atheist an experience of a religious conversion. I'm going to do my first experiment on the audience who don't know they're being filmed. Okay, so before he does <laughs> his first experience, uh, his experiment, 
I just want to apply a little bit of skepticism up front. And before I do that, I just want to say that whenever you want to cut in, you just need to forcefully say, hey, stop the stop the tape. <laughs> I, I will do it. I'll tell you who's been the best at uh, stopping the tape. Uh, surprisingly, Mild Matt, when he wants to stop the video, you are going to stop the goddamn video. He uh, he really <laughs> knows how to get in there and uh, and make that happen. So, uh, yeah, I was I was afraid not to stop the video. When he... <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try not to bully you over that much, but yeah, I'll, I will speak up when it's time to do so. Okay, you can't you can't be mild about this stuff. Uh, no. I always have my finger on the button. It's a it's a twitch to stop the video. So. Um, yeah, so you can do that easily. So I want to apply just a, a little bit of skepticism, and I'm surprised that I don't see this pushback uh, online from Christians, and maybe it's there and I've missed it. But, you know, we watch these very slick Darren Brown presentations. You know, I've seen I've seen several of them. I'm sure that you have. I'm sure the audience has seen uh, a lot of them. It, these are still TV shows. Okay, these are highly produced TV shows with very talented and trained producers. And Darren Brown is a very, very polished uh, TV presenter. And in the TV industry, we have actors. So when you see a televangelist doing their work, uh, it's been shown, exposed, that many of the people that they deal with, with their healings and so forth, are just actors. So why couldn't it be that Darren Brown is just employing a bunch of actors to act the way he wants them to act for the benefit of his show? H have you heard this accusation uh, leveled at all? Uh, I haven't, but I, I agree with you. I actually think that's a fair criticism. I mean, if you're watching a pre-produced video, how do you know what's real and, and what's staged? You, you really don't. So I think that kind of skepticism is actually warranted. I would I would find that fair criticism. Yeah, and I, I will just say, I'm not being skeptical for the sake of pretending to be a skeptic for this show. The, mm -hmm. When I first saw Darren Brown, um, when I first was introduced to him, it was from the Unbelievable Boards back in the day. And uh, I hadn't heard of him before then. And when I saw it, I was, I was skeptical about everything. So this was one of the first bits of skepticism that went through my mind. Uh, that, yeah, okay, this is pretty easy to set up with actors and it's a slick production, but this doesn't prove that he's doing the things that he says he's doing. Now, the only thing that tamps down that skepticism a bit for me is after all of this time, I have never seen any Christian debunk Darren Brown based on, you know, we've, we've actually talked to the people in his videos and we've got them to admit that they had signed a contract and they were just acting a, a role. I've, I've never heard a peep uh, of anything like that. Uh, have you? No, I haven't. I mean, which, which is, which is uh, evidence for the fact that he's actually doing this above board, but yeah, yeah. no, I haven't seen it. I, and if I did, I'd obviously uh, want to take that uh, under advisement. Of course, if that kind of smoking gun existed, I would have I would have thought that you know Christians would find it because Darren Brown has got to be public enemy number one to a, to a certain kind of Christian. They have surely right. looked. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the people who 
would have wanted to discredit Billy Graham, you know, because of some sexual misconduct or something. Billy Graham, as far as I know, went through his entire career uh, squeaky clean. Um, that says something. That's, that's great. His sons, not so much. But him, um, very good. And so I, I just wanted to throw that out there in case there was someone else thinking that. I'm not so gullible that I haven't had the thought. I just haven't seen any evidence that it's true. So let's let's see what he's doing with that in mind. Right, we're not filming at the moment, are we? Um, in that case, before we start, is my, my mic's, yeah, okay. Before we start then, I, and I, we're, just, we're going to do this without filming. You've all got, I hope, or we asked you to print out a photograph of a loved one. Hopefully these are prints and it wouldn't matter if they got damaged. That's the idea. I have here, this, um, this is extraordinary. This is a genuine satanic rite um, based on an 11th century manuscript. This is clearly what we were missing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were not, I tried to find See, something like this. <laughs> we, we're going to have to go back and recreate with Darren's satanic right book. <laughs> it is, it's the right that people read out declaring their allegiance to Satan. It's extraordinary these things uh, exist. And um, the idea is that you get his protection in your life, but then you're subject to his torments and, and whims for eternity after that. As part of it, what you do is you would stab a, it would have, back in the day, it would have been a portrait, but nowadays they do it with photographs. You stab uh, a photograph of um, someone that you love. You read this out, and this is declaring your allegiance to Satan. So before we start filming, does anybody want to do that? Just out of interest, anybody up for doing that? So that's at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven out of 160 of you. Um, what's your name? Sam. Sam. Do you want to come do it? Thank you, Sam. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. So it, it's interesting, this experiment. Uh, I wouldn't do it. And it's not because I, you know, fear some kind of satanic presence. I mean, obviously, I don't fear that. I just wouldn't do it out of respect for the person I have a picture of. I mean, if I have a picture of them that I've taken the time to print out, I probably like them. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not entirely sure um, what the point would be. Uh, we'll watch the experiment and we'll see what the point would be. But I, I thought that this was maybe the weakest part of the video. Yeah. And this and it's it's worse than gallstones. What he what he's uh, proposing. Yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not really falsifiable. But I, I think I know what his point is. But uh, we'll see. Who's in the photograph? Yeah. Uh, that's my twin sister, Lucy. Your twin sister, Lucy. Yeah. OK. So, uh, the reader, that's you, must place a representation of their loved one onto the table and light a black candle. So would you light the candle for me? Lovely. Wine is poured into the chalice. The reader must take a sip of the wine. And then read the first part of the rite. To master Satan himself, the faceless inferno, I offer my eternal soul forever to suffer in damnation, persecuted in torment for all time by your infernal princes, Baphomet, Thoth, and Set. To appease thine hunger, I give you my soul in return for your protection during this earthbound existence. Uh, Red is the dagger, plunges it into the photograph. Into your sister, please. 
again, again, again. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Well Thank done, you. Sam. And good luck with the rest of your life. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> What was of interest to me there, and by the way, Sam, we were filming that. I said we weren't filming it because I didn't want you just to be playing up for the cameras. I want you to do that and genuinely want to do it as opposed to just want to be on TV. You happy with that? Okay, good. Um, what was interesting to me was that only 11 out of 160 of you actually put your hand up. Out of, out of interest, how many of you actually believe in the devil and that stabbing a photograph could have any physical effect on the person in the photograph? Two? Three? couple of... Four, five, okay, six. Yeah, and you are very, you're largely an audience of, um, of, of, of unbelievers and, and, and skeptics as well, largely. So uh, the fact that so few of these people offered to perform the right does show that we're all born with an inbuilt, hardwired tendency to believe. And tonight I'm going to take you through the reasons why I think we develop religious belief and put them to the test by giving an atheist a religious conversion. So, um, as he states, he thinks that he has shown that because only a small percentage of the audience would have even been willing to do it, that that confirms a hardwired tendency for humans to believe. Now, as it happens, I think it is true that we have a hardwired tendency to believe, but I don't think his experiment shows that because there are many good reasons why you wouldn't want to participate in that experiment that has nothing to do with fear of satanic uh, in inclusion in your life. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he hasn't isolated many other reasonable reasons why someone wouldn't want to participate. Yeah, so uh, this, is, this is the weakest part of this particular presentation, but I, I did want to go ahead and isolate that from the rest of the presentation. And I wanted to um, just just call that out as as I think, uh, you know, interesting showmanship, but it but it doesn't actually show what he thinks it shows. Welcome to yep. the second part of Fear and Faith. Early this week, I took a small group of bright, rationally-minded atheists and agnostics and put them in the crypt of an old church and asked them to sit in the dark, alone, for 15 minutes. But before they entered the crypt, I told them that there had been stories of hauntings there and that I was interested in a report of their experiences in the dark. With this experiment, I'm aiming to show you how just the suggestion of the supernatural can bring out a tendency to believe in things that don't exist, even if you're an atheist. Josh, Haley, and Tom have been placed in a pitch-black crypt under a church. The only other things in the room with them are our infrared cameras. Okay, uh, just to make sure that I understand, isn't a crypt a place where they used to bury the religious dead, or at least some of the bodies or relics or... Um... Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tomb of some kind, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, just by saying it's a crypt, you're already suggesting that you know this is this is a place of the dead. Uh, I I would think, 
but yep. uh, this the power, the power of suggestion. Yes, yes. So this this actually does become uh, pretty interesting. And for the record, um, these could all be actors acting things out, but the reactions <laughs> seem pretty real to me. Shit, it's cold. It's so dark. Feels like I'm not alone. I can't see anything at all. Oh, God. I just think I can see things moving around me. I don't think I can do I can't do this. It feels like somebody's stood in a corner. <sighs> oh, God. Oh, oh. It's like moving around the wall. It feels like it was just to my right. Oh. Okay, I can see if something in front of me. What the? F no, I can't do it. I'm sorry, I can't do this. You know, lots of things that like faded outlines of, of people. There's something definitely in here. It was like a white, like um, I don't know, a girl. Jesus. They're in I've got the biggest fear of things behind me. Do you want to come out? Come out for a second. Yeah. It was weird because I kept seeing things. I'm sure I saw a round thing that looked almost like a head. It kind of looked like a nun, but no face. Couldn't see a face as quick as I looked. It just sort of looked like that shape with nothing in the middle. As soon as I sat down in that chair, it was like gone, and I was like, something is behind me. That thing just didn't want me there. And I think I just outstayed my welcome. <laughs> and I randomly saw this, this figure in front of me, this girl. It was just kind of an outline. The face was David, you know what you know what's interesting about this. Um, he said the only thing that's in the in the room with them is the camera, right? Right, right. The, but listen to all that background music that we get to hear on the mm -hmm. video. So not only is he using power of suggestion to them in the room, we as the watchers are getting the power of suggestion with the eerie music and the jump cuts. So, you know, the, how we are reacting to what's happening to them is even being affected by other stuff. Absolutely. Uh, and I thought about the camera uh, also. I don't know that there was a camera operator in there. They were probably just outside, but they knew that they were talking to a camera and it seems like there was a camera in front of them. And so they reported seeing, you know, something round uh, but featureless. Uh, mm -hmm. And the camera is using infrared, but it's, uh, I've, I've had cameras that use the, you know, the night, night vision stuff. They still emit a little bit of light in a pitch dark cave. I imagine that they could see uh, the camera, uh, right? you know, eerie, eerie uh, bits of that. Their, their testimony seems consistent with that anyway but it's, it's just interesting how their imagination kind of filled in little bits of information with spooky things for them absolutely and and given they're sitting in a noiseless completely pitch dark room their imagination is what's isolated they're not getting any other visual or audio stimuli Exactly. So it's just their imagination is just ramped to twelve at that but, point. But they feel like it's coming from outside of them, and I, I think mm -hmm. that this is this was the takeaway from this experiment for me. Mm -hmm. Th they're in an empty cave. 
All right. I, uh, it's just empty and dark and maybe a little chilly, but there's, they know that there's nothing there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yet they have this experience that feels like it's outside of them. And they would swear up and down in a court of life and death that they were feeling and, and seeing something outside of them. It, it yep. sounds, it already sounds like a religious experience and Absolutely. we should, we should begin to suspect, uh, just how powerful our in, internal senses are when it comes to fooling us into thinking that we are seeing and feeling things that we are not. Mm-hmm. Transpact, like see-through, there was something else in that room. I gave them an idea, nothing more, and from it their minds created an experience which for them was very real indeed. They all sensed a presence, because as shown by our satanic rite, we're all born with an inbuilt, hardwired tendency to believe. The people in that vault reacted in the way they did purely because I planted the idea it might be haunted. And remember, these are rational non-believers. The fourth person, though, who went in had a rather different reaction. Meet Natalie. I don't feel particularly freaked out, really. Um, there goes another train. I think it might be a district line. <laughs> feel quite safe, really. So unlike the others, Natalie was underwhelmed, to say the least. Natalie is an atheist. Moreover, she's a stem cell researcher, a scientist working in an area that many feel is deeply incompatible with religious belief. Our initial research revealed her to be deeply skeptical. So I felt she was the most challenging candidate to try to give the experience of a religious conversion. Now, like Natalie, I'm an atheist, and as you'll see tonight, I don't think a belief in God has to be foolish. I think it's probably unnecessary, but that's not the same thing as being stupid. I want to concur with that. I I think this is very important, and it doesn't get said often enough, and I try to remember to say it from time to time. Yes, I, I fight hard against this idea of religious experience but it's not because i think that a person is stupid if they think they have a religious experience or even if they believe in god i don't think that's stupid i think in fact it's perfectly reasonable perfectly rational given their set of circumstances their upbringing any number of things they're not being irrational and they're not being stupid they i I just think they're incorrect and that's kind of where we need to have this conversation uh, so I appreciate Darren Brown saying that, and I wanted to take this opportunity to echo it. Yes, I concur. Nor would I try to presume to undo your belief if you, if you happen to believe. And this is, this is an important point. Clearly, faith, which we've all been taught to understand and respect, comes in a variety of forms and generally very real to the people that hold it. But we're undoubtedly psychological creatures and all susceptible to manipulation and the way that our brains have become wired over time. Okay, so back to Natalie and my attempt to convert her. I wanted to find out how skeptical she is about God and more importantly, how big this challenge would be to give her this conversion. Hello. How are you doing? Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Natalie. Here we come. So, how was the crypt? When were you last in church? 
some christening or wedding no longer than a couple of years ago, I think, yeah. When did you last go for devotional reasons? I've never been for devotional reasons, yeah. more ceremonial. Yeah, so you're, you're an atheist, are you? I take yeah, it lightly. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and you're a stem cell scientist. Mm -hmm. How long have you done that for? Oof, nearly six, seven years, actually, yeah. Can you ever imagine being a believer? For me, that would be literally last resort. You know, mm. there's other things, there's self-belief for my, you know, that would help me get through bad times, you know. So yeah. never, never have been, can't ever see yourself no. being a believer? No. No. Cool. So here's the challenge. I'm taking someone who is a staunch atheist and scientist with a skeptical, analytical mind and trying to give her a religious experience in order to show how religious belief comes from us, not from the divine. And these facts are not the only things working against me. Usually, in the case of a conversion, Natalie would be searching for some sort of answer to life's problems, but she's quite happy with her life, so I won't have that advantage. Neither am I the preacher at a big religious rally, which can easily create a hyper-suggestibility and ensure that large numbers of people convert every night. I want this to be a real and profound experience for her, and not just something she thinks I've talked her into. So I'll have to do it indirectly, without mentioning God at all, so she doesn't attribute it to me and I'll give myself 15 minutes to do it. Join me after the break to find out how I'm aiming to give Natalie this experience. So while uh, he is in break, um, I became a Christian when I was seven. I was baptized when I was seven. <clears throat> the decision to be baptized and uh, the, the actual being baptized was fairly rapid succession for me. Then again, I grew up in a Christian home where my father was a preacher and it was fairly common for uh, kids to get baptized. So that that part wasn't too extraordinary. But I will say that I did have something like a conversion experience. And my conversion experience was pretty straightforward uh, and one that a lot of Christians today would say probably shouldn't qualify, but screw them. Um, <laughs> my conversion experience was I, I became keenly aware. I, I was able to put together the pieces finally, after all the sermons that I listened to and Bible studies and so forth, that, uh, hell was real. And I can tell you that I had almost, I guess what would today be considered a type of trauma. I was scared to death of going to sleep at night. And I don't know how long this is true of me, but it, it had been true for a while. My fear was the line, if I die before I wake, uh, you know, the old nursery rhyme. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I knew what dying was, and I was just afraid that if I surrender consciousness, I may not come back. By the way, that fear remains to me, uh, with me to this day. I've had more surgeries than most people are ever going to have. And my greatest fear is anesthesia. <laughs> I would, I would almost rather have the surgery wide awake because <laughs> I am scared to death of being put under and then left at the whims of someone to wake me up again. I may not wake up. Um, so this is a, this is an issue. I take sleeping pills, uh, at night and have been for years. I can't really sleep, uh, without it. Never have been able to really. 
So once I had that um, fully formed idea that death was scary and it wasn't the end, and in fact, I was probably going to go to hell because I wasn't a Christian. I just lived in a Christian home and because I haven't been baptized and baptism is essential. And oh my God, I've got to get baptized right now. <laughs> you know, these, <clears throat> it's kind of came Jump in the tub. Uh, Jump yeah. in the tub real fast. It actually was a tub. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, I think that's all of the, the autobiography I will give right now. But that was kind of one of the, the driving influences of my conversion. But it was a convergence of ideas that came together really quickly and really powerfully. And uh, I was convinced and convicted that I had to become a Christian and get in a saved state uh, Im immediately. Um, so that's, that's the closest thing to a conversion experience that I had. Did you have anything like a conversion experience, some conviction of the Holy Spirit type of experience, or was it more uh, um, head than heart for you? Yeah, it was, um, I don't think I had, you know, you know, kind of a lightning in a bottle experience. Uh, I was also raised in a Christian home um, and, you know, was being taken to church and taught in these things uh, from a very, very young age. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't think I had an experience. It was really intellectual as much as it could be for someone young but it was you know we were we were baptists um and you know you got baptized after you committed it was the, it was the way of you showing it wasn't the thing that that made you converted it was the mm -hmm. thing that showed everybody else that yes i'm ready to be a part of the family mm -hmm. uh so it was it was really kind of a choice uh in in my young mind um and i will say that i i did feel things like a kind of a joy a, a sense of relief, you know, kind of, I had feelings like I was being watched and comforted uh, by a deity uh, after I, um, you know, uh, converted and, and said the sinner's prayer and became a Christian officially. Uh, but it wasn't something that sat there all the time. It was kind of something I had to conjure up and think about in order to get that feeling to come downstream uh, in the future. So, yeah, yeah I don't, I don't think I, I had anything like these guys are trying to, to create. Yeah. And I, I can, uh, tell you just in case there's someone already forming the question uh becoming a christian didn't stop the night terrors uh, i was mm. still scared to go to sleep because you know there's a there's a whole other door of terrors once you've been baptized which is uh have i sinned today mm -hmm. probably oh my god let me reflexively say this prayer before i go to sleep because I'm, i might die and go to hell for a hundred minutes in <laughs> so mm -hmm. um that just that just never went away for me and it could be that that's just a part of my psyche and it took on the form of religion once religion kind of uh, came into my life. I, I haven't been properly psychoanalyzed to figure out where that uh, <laughs> terror comes from and why I can't sleep without uh, medication to this day. But there you go. The S, uh, the 4S listeners can psychoanalyze me. And uh, if their advice is good, they can send me a bill.
Tonight, in Fear and Faith, I'm investigating whether we could have created God in our own minds. Is there really a divine power, or can our experience of religion be explained by psychology alone? So my challenge tonight is to try and give Natalie, an atheist, a strong and powerful religious experience. And I'm going to do this through a 15-minute long conversation with her. And during that time, I won't be mentioning God at all, but I will be relying on the knowledge, which I will explain here, that can be used to bring about a religious experience. And to show you how the very idea of a supernatural presence affects our lives, I will uh, demonstrate an interesting test using this garish object. There you go, eBay. Now, you probably know what this is. It's a buzzwire game. The idea being you have to move that. Every time I touch it, it buzzes. You die, and a little light comes on. And uh, we gave this to a few of you to try sometime before filming. And, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing to do. I think. Well, can you put your hands up if you, there's a group over here that we're, we're doing it? One, two, three, four. Excellent. What's your name, sir? Connor. Connor. So I think you, Connor, you got, uh, I think you registered seven buzzes. Seven. You find it easy, difficult? It's quite tricky, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite tricky, yeah. Excellent. Um, just nice to meet you, by the way. Come, okay. come up here just for a second for me. So, um, so we left you alone in a room uh, to do this, and we didn't let you know that we were filming. Um, and you were asked every time you made a mistake, to register it on, uh, on, there was a counter that he had to press every time he, he, he made a buzzer. So it was, it was up to him to register his mistakes. And uh, so let's see Connor having a go at this secretly film. Remember, he registered seven mistakes. So the number there on the left is going to be the actual number of buzzes, and the number on the monitor is how many get registered. That's a one. And at the moment, he's being supervised by our producer, Dave, uh, just to... Oh, yeah, Dave's pressing the counter just to establish what's going on, but then Dave will get called out, leaving Connor to continue on his own. He's being trusted with the job of registering his mistakes. And note that yellow armchair to the right, that'll be important later. Generously registering a mistake. <laughs> Eight. <laughs> nine. <laughs> ten. There he goes. Eighteen. Actual number 18, uh, 7, registered. Sir, a bit awkward there, cheating. <laughs> Can you explain yourself? No. Uh... <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for that. Um, I'll ask you to sit back down. There's a, there's a good reason um, why this happened. Thank you. Um, I can explain it. Actually, three out of four of you that did it. Would you put your hands up again for me, the four of you that did it? Three out of four of you uh, cheated. And uh, so it wasn't just you, Connor. And, and here is your group. I'll show you a group. So Connor's up there on the left. We also have Amanda. Uh, she's a cheat. And uh, Jack is also a cheat. So any, uh, any friends or family of, of these people that are watching now, just bear in mind, they're probably people that you probably shouldn't trust. We'll just say that. There they are, all of them cheating.
But we were hoping they would. We actually made it very easy for them to do so. We told them that by doing well at this, it would lead to their involvement in the show, which, <laughs> in a sense, it did. Um, however, there was a second group, another group. Would you put your hands up? You're the other group that did this. Excellent. Thank you very much. None of these people cheated. Not one of them. Yet three out of four of your group did. Now, this group was told exactly the same things, including the fact that doing well would lead to their involvement on the show. But they were also given an extra piece of information. This chair is, a, is for a new show we're doing called Antiques Ghost Show, um, where people bring in antiques that they think are haunted or have some sort of possession about them. Apparently it's worth loads and a woman died in it and still sits in it to this day. It's, I know, they're filming with it later on, it's weird. Antiques Ghost Show. <laughs> Can't believe you fell for that. This is based on an experiment by a psychologist. I really wish they had made the show. <laughs> Jesse Baring and his colleagues. Once the idea is sown that there could be some sort of presence in the room, something happens. Hardly anyone cheats. Any of you actually believe that the chair was haunted? No. None of them believe the chair was haunted. Yet despite that, the idea is enough to significantly affect our behavior. This experiment shows that if people are led to imagine a supernatural presence, they will then act in a more moral way. And this reaction comes from deep within us, not from the force itself, because the chair wasn't really haunted. There's a likely evolutionary reason for this, Bering suggests. As our ancestors developed language, it also meant that they could gossip. And through gossip, your reputation could be damaged, which meant you could be outcast because others would discuss your misdeeds. And that makes you someone to be avoided. And it could put you in danger, and ultimately it makes you less likely to reproduce. So we learned moral behavior to keep us all happily ticking along together and to up our survival chances. Now, the safest way of ensuring this conformity and therefore increasing our survival chances would be to believe there was some divine presence that might still catch us out when we thought our peers weren't around. So our invention of an all-seeing supernatural force like God to moderate our actions and us being on our best behavior just because we're told there's a haunted chair in the room, it's part of the hard wiring of our brains. It once helped us with our survival chances. And so uh, again, I'm not entirely sure how valid this experiment is. I don't know if it's a large enough sample size. Um, so as, as experiments go, it's a pretty small one. That said, I am somewhat familiar with the research that he's talking about, and it does seem to uh, have at least some validity in the uh, psychology world. Yeah, I, I am as well, that obviously, you know, we'll behave differently if we're being watched or not. Um, right. But, uh, you e know, even just the suggestion of being watched, uh, even if we don't see how we're being watched, just, just the suggestion that's firmly in our mind that we're being watched. Yeah, I don't I don't think it, it leads people to think that there's actually someone in that chair watching them. But like you said, it activates a part of your brain that says I need to behave a certain way because of the suggestion of being watched. Right. The um, the thing, though, that I think is important to note is that is only part of the story that is not the whole story. And again, real life bears this out that might moderate our behavior initially you know for a short time but there is actually no research that suggests that christians are more honest than atheists 
they, they lie on their taxes in the same rate. They cheat on their marriages at the same rate. There's no, in, in other words, this, this thing that might keep us honest for a little while doesn't seem to keep us honest long term. And this is partially why Christians have to keep re-upping their belief in God and fear in God by going to church every Sunday and getting those messages reinforced again and again. Because those messages, that idea that somebody is watching me, is fairly weak and very temporary. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. And, and, it, and it is, you know, pretty strong evidence, you know, against the fact that they have this kind of constant feeling of being engaged with with the divine, right? I mean, it, it needs to be reinforced, it needs to be reminded. Right. Uh, and, and to be honest, to be honest, even if you even thinking about it, I mean, like you said, they still commit acts that they wouldn't do if they knew for certain they were being watched by a human, right? Like, uh, the, if the IRS was watching me, I wouldn't cheat on my taxes. I just know that they're not watching me if I were to go that way. So obviously right. on some level, they're feeling like they're not being watched. So that's evidence against them actually believing what they say they believe. It's the uh, empty police car scenario on the highway. Uh, when it, you, you don't actually need a policeman in the police car to mm -hmm. slow down traffic. Uh, so if you've got a place where people are doing a lot of speeding, and if, you're, if your desire as a municipality is to make it safer and reduce accidents, all you need to do is put an empty police car uh, where it's visible in a place where people speed and they will slow down. That mm -hmm. this this is just uh, true. And people don't see the police officer in the car. They just see the car and they slow down or they hear that there's a police trap over here and they will slow down whether they see it or not. So it's it's very easy to show that when people are pretty sure that someone's watching then they will do the right thing. But what happens the moment they get past the police trap? They speed up again. Mm -hmm. right? and this, this is not something that changes their driving habit for the entire commute home. It just changes their driving habit for that moment in that spot. And so this is, you know, once again, kind of the same as, as church. Um, it's it's a, a great piece of reinforcement to get at the moment but what happens when church is over? Um, you know, you go back to see your mistress. <laughs> so, um, so I just I, I thought I would uh, bring that up because I wanted to round that out. I I do agree with Darren Brown that the that being observed or the fear of being observed changes your behavior, but it's a very short term thing most likely explains why even atheists often betray a tendency to give purpose and meaning to events in their life that really they shouldn't, given that they don't believe there's a supernatural force or agency at work. So we've got this supernatural all-seeing force over us, but how do we make it a reality in our lives? We need to personify it. We hope that this force is strong and wise and loving and all the attributes found in a classic father figure. The first technique I'm going to use on Natalie is to elicit feelings of this powerful father figure, which later on I can get her to attach to the idea of God. So during my 15-minute conversation with Natalie, I'm going to have her create the feeling of being loved by a perfect father, and then I'm going to associate that feeling with a trigger so I can bring it back whenever I want. What's your relationship like with your dad? It's brilliant. He, yeah. he is not, 
without, you know, putting him on a pedestal, he's sort of my hero. Is he? Yeah. That's such a lovely, lovely thing. There's a lot of people I just don't, don't have that. Yeah, I wonder how differently this experiment would have gone if she had said, oh no, he's a terrible abuser. Because her having a good relationship with her dad, I, I can tell you, was a critical part uh, of this experiment. So if somehow, I think he probably knew that. Maybe there were uh, questions, questionnaires that people filled out, uh, that sort of thing. So that's that's just another thought that uh, came to mind here, there, because it's critical that she have that response to that question. Yep, I agree. When you were little, when you were tiny, the same? But basically, when, when I was a child, Dad was the came home seven from work. So if you know if he was ever naughty, it'd be like wait till Dad gets home. <laughs> oh, so see, yeah. he was seen as the more you know disciplinarian. So just as a thought exercise, if you imagine that your dad didn't have to go to work when you were little, that he had nothing to do other than be completely devoted to you. How does that make you feel? I've now started tapping my fingers on the table whilst talking to Natalie. I'm associating in Natalie's unconscious the emotion she's feeling with that tapping. Then later I can trigger them again by tapping in the same way moments before her religious experience. How does that make you feel? Mm, makes me feel special. We're really honoured and yeah, just special. Yeah. By her trance-like expression, Natalie is showing signs of unconscious processing and is absorbed in the idea of a perfect father figure. And now these feelings are in place, I'll get her to attach them to God later in the process. So once we start to imagine the presence of God, it's a very small step to start believing that he can think or that he holds power and, and, and possibly that he has a plan for our lives. And if we look for it, our brains are wired to find it. We apply what's called a theory of mind. It's the ability to step inside other people's heads. And the core of religious belief comes down to our idea that God has a mind and therefore a plan for us. So we create the idea of an agency that God takes an interest in us and is pulling strings in our lives. So I'm going to use this innate tendency to see an agency at work to help give Natalie her conversion experience. I'm going to do it by asking questions and then subtly suggesting the idea that a plan could be at work. What about, um, have you ever had things in your life, things that went wrong? you know, things that didn't work out as they were supposed to, or mistakes that you made. Relationship, but, oh, okay. you know, that, that's... Yeah, well, no, no, that's... completely, no, that's a fairly standard yeah. thing. So at some point there has been a relationship mm. that hasn't worked out brilliantly, of course. Mm. But when you look back, are you more able to understand how to why that happened? What, if, um, is it like a bit of a, like a grand plan? To... If well, yeah, it allowed me to live the rest of my life the way I wanted it to. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting Natalie to see that the things that have gone wrong could have happened for a reason and were part of a bigger plan. Now she needs to connect that with feelings of being cherished and a sense of awe and wonder. Is it, where, where do you sort of physically feel it, if you, if you think about it? Tell me, does it oh, make... my heart, because, you know, the emotion that you feel when you're hugged, it starts off in my chest and my heart, because it's, yeah, just to feel so safe and protected. Did you go on holiday a lot when you, when you were little? Yeah. yeah. One thing we never did, which I always, always wanted to do, was um, go up a mountain top and have that feeling of standing at the top. 
a feeling of absolute awe. What is awe to you then? What is that kind of, is, is, it, is it that, if you think um, about it? For me, awe is looking at a full night sky yeah. of stars and to, to know that each pinpoint isn't just a little speck of light, it's a planet or a sun, just to know it's all up there. And I think actually those are two things that we very, be very rare to get both those feelings together and combined into one. We've reached a crucial stage in our conversation. After discussing and provoking feelings of both being cherished and a sense of awe, I'm using my hands to physically combine both emotions, and this will help me generate these emotions simultaneously in Natalie during her religious experience. Very, it'd be very rare to get both those feelings together and combined into one sort of uh, one image of kind of both intense awe and feeling of everything is so much more than me, and I'm tiny, and at the same time, absolutely just being being cherished and sort of. And, in well. a way, that sort of the feeling of being cherished makes it even more special to know that you are insignificant and yet someone's so still willing to cherish you that much. It's like, well, it must be that bit special. With over half of my 15 minutes on, I've to giving Natalie the experience of a religious conversion. After the break, I want you at home to join us here in an experiment. So before we come back, can you please do the following three things at home? Firstly, Please close all the windows in the room that you're watching TV in. Secondly, please turn up the bass function if you have one on your TV set or connect it to any stereo or subwoofer system if you have one. Thirdly, finally, this is a bit of an odd one, please remove any scent of mint that you might have in the room. If so, if your gran has just chomped on another extra strong mint, please get her to wait in the garden for a little while. Thank you. See you in a couple of minutes when I will explain all. Sorry about the coughing. Um, I'll try to edit as much of that out as possible. So uh, during that uh, section, I thought it was interesting. You see uh, Darren Brown using... Uh, you see Darren Brown. Did we lose you there for a minute? Yeah, I, I got disconnected, but I'm back. Can you hear Either me? way, we got you. Yeah. So during that, uh, during that segment, um, we watched Darren Brown using some very specific uh, hypnosis techniques and um, other types of uh, techniques. And I can say the technique itself is not that important, whether it's uh, tapping or, uh, you know, an image or, or, or gesture that you do or some other sound that you make that's not important but what darren is doing is is very uh common kind of a hip, hypnosis and suggestion uh practices uh and i would say that people especially religionists uh salespeople as well uh, so i've been both a religionist and a salesperson uh, they do this. They do this sort of thing all the time, even if it's not cynically um, in, intentional. Kind of like a hypnotist would do it. We still learn ways to manipulate and uh, utilize the power of suggestion, and uh, it's it's very strong. And so, as as the person on the uh, side of this that Darren Brown has been on, except without 
quite the same amount of skill and certainly without the same amount of intentionality. Uh, I can tell you that it is remarkably easy to make people have thoughts that they think was their idea. Um, you can right. sell it. You can sell anything to anyone if you if they become convinced that it was their idea all along. And so uh, you learn how to do that. Um, and it, at at the same time, you can convince people uh, to become a Christian, to be converted to faith. You can find their uh, points of weakness and insecurity, and you can figure out ways to use that uh, to your advantage during this sales process, because uh, a, a conversion uh, effort, an intentional conversion effort by a preacher is a sales process. So uh, I, I just wanted to point that out, even though Darren is coming at this from the perspective of someone with, uh, you know, some experience with hypnosis in in particular technique, you don't actually need that kind of technique to do what he's doing. Right. Tonight I'm exploring whether God could be nothing more than an illusion, a belief in something that isn't there. Using a number of experiments, I'm investigating whether religious experience could be explained not by the divine, but by psychology. And in doing so, I hope to prove how even atheists have a hardwired capacity to believe. Never have been, can't ever see yourself being a believer. Welcome back. Uh, I'm now going to illustrate the next step we're going to take in the journey to give Natalie a powerful religious experience. So, I have here a little bottle of a very powerful peppermint oil. When I open this, it's strong enough that the smell will permeate the room. Obviously, it's going to be fainter for those of you at the back. It'll be fairly faint by the time it reaches all of you. But uh, what I want you to do, as soon as you smell it, is to put your hand up. And the point of this is to see how a scent moves around a room, because it's not quite in the way that you might think it will. So the moment you smell it, it will only be faint. Please put your hand up. Anyone else? Good. Excellent. Thank you very much. You can drop your hands now. Thank you very much. Good. Uh, so here's the twist. Uh, the smell was not in fact generated by the peppermint oil. That is not peppermint oil. That's actually just water. There you go, Connor, if you smell that. Nothing in there, is there? It's just water. You smell anything at all? Nothing. No. <laughs> Nothing at all. And that will relax you quite nicely. <laughs> See me afterwards. <laughs> the smell was actually generated by a sound wave. If you transmit a sound wave at 18.98 hertz into a contained space, such as we've done with you guys here, there are sort of hidden speakers, black speakers there, there's one there, one over there, and one just there that are transmitting the sound wave into a contained space. Um, 
If you do that, it resonates. The sound will resonate with a very small part of the brain responsible for smell, and it gives a lot of people, not everybody of course, but a large number of people, a definite sensation of smelling something sort of fresh and minty. And the fun thing is, this can also be done through the television set. So, we're going to try this now. I will give you instructions in a moment. And if you're good at this and you do smell it, because not everybody can, and particularly if you're on Twitter, will you please let us know uh, by tweeting using the hashtag Darren Smells. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag Darren Smells. Good, thank you. So we have been testing this over the past few weeks and have found out the following measures make it work better. So as I said before the break, please close any windows. Right, now this isn't obviously to actually keep the smell in per se, but it allows the sound wave to bounce back into the room. Uh, secondly, if you can, turn up the bass on your TV set or speakers. If you have a subwoofer, turn it up as well. It'll still work without this, but it does seem that it can be more effective uh, if the bass is turned up. Thirdly, remove any existing scent uh, of mint that you might have in the room. Okay. Next, come close to your TV. You need to be about six feet from it if possible. You need to sit, please, not stand and relax. Your brain needs to be relaxed, so just avoid all other distractions. So please do these things for me now. And when the mint picture comes up on your screen, turn your TV volume to full. And when the mint picture goes away, you can drop the volume again. Now about 10% of you, interestingly, might get more of a citrusy smell than a minty smell, but please do tell us and tell us on Twitter if you have that. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Turn your volume up now. There you go. So please let us know if you could smell anything, mint, citrus, or just cock, as I'm sure most of you will be tweeting as I speak. Um, or maybe it was the whiff of something more organic you picked up on. <laughs> pile of poo. Uh, the sound wave doesn't exist. If you smell peppermint, then welcome to the placebo effect. It's nothing more than suggestion and expectation. First of all, why would anyone believe a word that Darren Brown says or one of these <laughs> events? Fully once, shame on you. Fool me twice. I guess still shame on you. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah I, you can't see it because my camera's off, but the eye rolling effect was pretty large over here. <laughs> also, I feel suddenly an urge. So, um, yeah, carry on. Hmm. Suddenly, I can smell mint. You've um, been suggested, David. You fell for it. Now you're. <laughs> but. But seriously, this is, um, th as ridiculous as this experiment is, it reminds me so much of uh, some of the best Christian persuaders uh, I've seen. You know, they they speak in this way, you know, and they might give very specific steps, come close to the television, uh, put uh, place your hand, uh, one hand on your heart, the other hand in your uh, in the air, uh, close your eyes, uh, you know, envision uh, Jesus on the cross, any, any number of things. Um, th the power of suggestion can be very strong. And you have to know that uh, there would be a very large non-zero uh, amount of people uh, when seeing this for the first time who would have smelled mint. Because, because he, he has a story 
attached to it. You know, there's, it, and it's a story full of things that people don't fully understand. So, you know, there's sound waves, there's this very specific frequency, but it affects this uh, very small portion of the brain, which also um, uh, uh, processes smell. And it all sounds plausible because there's just enough scientific words there, but also just enough things that you don't understand so that you think, yeah, that could be true. Mm -hmm. That's so much of the Christian case, uh, combining things that sound plausible with a lot of things that we don't understand. And it's not just Christianity. Uh, it's, it's new age healers with their magnets and, uh, uh, people talking about various energies. I mean, that sounds like a, a very scientific idea, energies, right? Um, and so you, you combine enough of these things together and you have a story and people's minds and imaginations fills in the rest of the, the truthy details. So I, uh, I just thought I would point that out, even though this seems silly, this, this, this has been working on humans for a very long time. Research mm -hmm. indicates that if you smelt it, you're probably more creative, open and intelligent than those who did not. And if you didn't smell it, it probably means you are more critically minded and less prone to obvious flattery. But it's precisely this expectation and suggestion that I'm working with during my attempt to give Natalie her religious experience using purely psychological techniques. I suppose also you're working with placebos at the moment, aren't you, with the stem cell research, mm. which is... Um, an area that really interests me and you. The show before this show that's going out now is actually about placebos. But there were a small number of people that just weren't really quite embraced it. They were a bit more skeptical about it. And that was really interesting, I found, because what would make it work and be of real benefit to these people was to actually dispel that and completely, completely embrace this experience. Which I suppose is what a leap of faith is, isn't it? What do I think applying for this show? It's one of the first things I've ever done that I didn't know what the end result would be. Yes. Because this is literally for faith because you apply and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to get picked. Yeah. You don't know what they're going to do with you if you get picked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a whole, you know, few months of don't know, don't know, can't plan, can't control. I am, that's why some people see me as a control freak because I've never done anything without knowing what the end result would be conclusion would be. Right. So this was a new thing? Yeah. It was yeah. a new thing? Thought, so yeah. you took a bit of a leap? Yeah, yeah, totally. Now that I've suggested to Natalie that faith can be a positive thing, all the elements I need are in place for her conversion moment. Now, if I wanted her to continue to believe in God, which I don't, she would need to start looking for evidence in her life to support that belief. And this is vital for maintaining an identity as a believer. When we think something is true, we look for anything which will confirm it to us. We find patterns in randomness. Now, I'm going to show you something here with the audience, but you can play along at home too. Take a look at these photos, courtesy of Professor Richard Wiseman. So, picture of a, uh, a young girl, cruel victim of a custard pie attack. <laughs> but if you look at there is something slightly odd in the picture. I don't know if you can work this out. If you look behind her, can you see that? What is that? Can you see it? 
there is, yeah, it looks like a weird sort of homunculus or little goblin or tiny sort of man's face. If you look at the bricks behind him, you can see it actually would be oddly too small for a man. Um, looking over the wall. Uh, what about this one? Take a look at this. Can you see? Now, this is a bit more difficult to spot. This is a car. Notice there is nobody in the car. It's empty. Can you see anything weird in this one? Face in the wing mirror. Exactly. Well done. Nicely spotted. No one in the car yet. A creepy reflection of what appears to be a woman in the wing mirror. So let's just go back to the, um, the girl there. So if you take a look at it, you can see, yes, it does look like a face, but you can also, if you just uh, squinted it in the right way, work out that it's also just leaves, isn't it? It's just leaves and light and shadow. But yeah, I still see a face. <laughs> so for what it's worth, I've looked at this. <laughs> so did I, and, and I saw another face over to the left. I've seen faces everywhere. We turn that random interplay of light and leaves into a face. And this is a really interesting thing. This desire to find patterns in randomness, or pareidolia as it's called, is probably the biggest contributor to supernatural belief. Randomness is not a comfortable thing for us to deal with. As our brain whizzes to make sense of things that make no sense, we fall prey to just seeing things that aren't there. I wanted to see how this desire to make sense out of randomness could play out in someone's life. So I asked people to apply for a TV show called Intervention. And Emma here was one of those people, and I arranged to meet up with her to explain more. I've asked Emma to meet me at this cafe where I'm going to explain to her the premise of my new show. Okay, so I wanted to use this opportunity to point out another thing about conversion experiences. Conversion doesn't always work. In fact, uh, in my experience, it's pretty rare. Churches are pretty pissed poor at getting people to convert to their religion and join their church. There are a few that are successful, but it's a lot of counting the hits and ignoring the misses. So uh, Darren Brown, he says, Emma is one of the people that I approached uh, with this new show idea. I suspect hmm. the reason we get Emma is because the others didn't pan out <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, the way he uh, wanted it to. But that's okay. That's fine. Uh, he may have tried this 99 times and it worked only once. But that's true with religion, too. That's true with religious conversion. So we can we can forgive a little bit of that here, but it's also fair that we spot it. Uh, when we see it. And I, I think that we have at least a, a clear hint that Emma wasn't the only person that he tried this with. She's just the one where it worked. Right. In intervention, I'll be using actors who will intervene in Emma's everyday life in order to teach her things that she can take and use in a positive way. Hi, can I get you a cold drink at all? Uh, water would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks very much. Cheers. <laughs> Hi, Emma. Hi, Hello. Darren. How are you doing? Sarah, nice to see nice you. Nice to meet you. I would like you to take part in my new show, if you're up for it, and it's called Intervention. <laughs> we are going to set up interventions in your life. We're going to make things happen to you. Now, most of them will be fairly subtle and natural. Some of them may be less so. The point of the show is to teach you something that, that I think you'll genuinely benefit from and, and, and we'll get something out of. And to prove how easy it is for me to manipulate the world around you, the guy over there on the bench is going to spill your water. No, no, don't worry. Are you all right? I'll get It's fun, isn't it? Obviously, we'll be filming the whole thing on hidden cameras, and we're very good with hidden cameras, so you won't spot them. You will okay. not spot them, so don't drive yourself mad trying to find them. No, I won't. We'll be using actors. We will be 
um, involving people that are very close to you and people that aren't close to you. And all I'll ask you to do as it goes along is to make a video diary and okay. send this to us. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Have a really interesting fortnight. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Cheers. So there's one thing I haven't mentioned to Emma. I won't be doing anything. We won't be secretly filming, we won't involve her family and friends, we won't employ any actors. But the mere idea that I am doing something is hopefully enough for her to start to look out for signs of my involvement or this agency looking over her. And once she gets that in her head, she'll find positive results for herself without any intervention from me. Her video diaries over the course of the next two weeks show her revealing all the things that she thinks we might have set up in order to teach her something valuable. So I actually found this to be the most powerful uh, of the experiments. Uh, in this show, and we might come back uh, and talk about this, but I, I just wanted to point that out as we get ready to see the segment. I had to pop into Sainsbury's uh, just to pick up a few bits, and I, I saw a, like a cheapy pair of slippers. And as I tried them on, a guy came around the corner and like kicked my converses across, <laughs> across the clothes aisle. I walked across the car park to get to my flat, and a guy walked past me, and we literally just stared at each other. One thing I wish maybe I did do was just smile a bit more. A young guy came running up to me, waving this £10 note at me. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I've just uh, found this. It must have come from you. Have you dropped it? These little events are getting me thinking a lot more now than what perhaps, you know, I would have had I not been doing these diaries. The penny dropped. I'm thinking this is about an intervention in me and my life. You know, I've established what things are that I'd like to change, I guess. Is it now up to me to change that? Hi, Emma. It sounded like by the end of it, you were starting to get a sense that there was maybe a little more going on than, than we'd yeah. said. So even though I did nothing, you attributed these random events in your life to me, much like I think believers do with God, and then you tried to learn something from them. So even though now you know it wasn't real, did you, did you take anything from the experience? It sounded like you did. I'm a huge worrier, so I've made a point now of not worrying so much. Um, I'm a bit more spontaneous now as well, um, and I make a point of seeing my friends more, which is something that I needed to do, so... That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Emma. Thanks. So we sometimes talk about uh, the power of changed lives and how that proves a conversion, but the pushback to that is people change their lives all the time. Sometimes they change it from from the good to the bad. Sometimes it's morally neutral, but some other type of change. Changed lives happen all the time. And it can become a little bit worrisome, especially for Christians who are harried by uh, atheists like me, who say, okay, great. That person that you mentioned, they had a changed life. They came out of uh, a lifetime of addiction. But what about the guy next to him? What about that guy? Because they didn't get that changed life experience. Or these 10 people uh, at church who come to church every day, they didn't get that changed life experience. Why some and not others? Why is God playing favors? And, and the real answer here is there's no God playing favors. It's just individuals uh, changing their lives based on uh, their own internal forces. Uh, and so, yeah, if you're, if you're convinced, really convinced that there's a God pulling the strings and making things different for you, you'll find a way to make that true, uh, in many cases, but it's, it's not a matter of God helping some 
and not others. It's a matter of different people with different psyches uh, having varying abilities to help themselves. Exactly. And then they and then they take those external factors and they repurpose them into the story of what they're trying to do from inside. Right. And and for them, they see all kinds of external evidences of how God uh, intervened in this small way or other and helped them to change their life. And that's just kind of the story we we tell ourselves. And I, I thought that this particular experiment was a, a powerful example of that sort of thing where we create the story, uh, the details of the story in my mind, in our minds, once we're convinced that there's a story being played out. Mm -hmm. So we are near to the end of this. Let's uh, let's get through the end and see what our observations are. So I'm reaching the climax of my attempts to give Natalie a strong and powerful religious experience. You've already seen me introduce the idea of a perfect father figure, elicit and combine feelings of awe and being cherished, and allow her to notice a grand plan in her life. I've also attached these feelings to the tapping of my finger so that I can bring them all back in an instant. I'm now going to leave her alone in the church so she can take it all in. And I'm hoping she will piece all of these together and have a powerful and very real experience. And what you're about to see now has no music or effects placed over it. Instead, I want you to experience what happened as it happened. Um, brilliant. I'm actually just going to nip out for uh, two minutes and leave you here, leave you here for a second. Um, uh, I th I th it's actually really, really interesting talking to you because I do think there are so many beliefs and I suppose new experiences, things that are new and surprising that could literally be sort of right in front of us and we don't even quite register that they're there until one day when we just stand up and then we feel that new thing which can be really rich and very powerful and right there and really, and really hit us in a very real way. Um, and we can surprise ourselves. Anyway, I'm going to come back in just one second. Thank you. you can stretch your legs. You don't need to. You can, you know, get up okay. and move around if you like. Sorry. <laughs> oh, 
going to meet Natalie. Tonight, I've been looking at how psychological techniques can be used to explain why we believe in God. It was important, I felt, to show you that these techniques actually work and that this innate hardwiring we have really can give us a powerful experience of God without any need for him to exist. So I've used them to bring about a strong and powerful experience of a religious conversion in an atheist stem cell scientist called Natalie. <laughs> We're going to meet her in a bit, but first let's hear her initial reaction to the experience. Yeah, talk to me. Why couldn't I have had this all my life? I'm saying, I've had moments where I felt complete awe at what I could see, you know. I've been to you know, music concerts where you leave it and you're just on such a high because the talent you've seen on stage has just blown you away. And oh, it's like the love, the love I get for my family, and my friends. I just felt that times a thousand. When you just when you stood up. Oh God! Oh God! <laughs> how do you feel when you think about God now compared to how you were earlier on when you came in? <sighs> like a, a unconditional love that that will always be there no matter what. I don't know. Oh, it's so conflicting. <laughs> so you think it doesn't quite fit into your. Uh, scientific. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ever the scientist. Oh, God. Do you want to go and get some. Can I show you some water? Oh, water, please. Some water. Some water. <laughs> Here's Natalie, everyone. They're dying to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Um, now, we've kept you out of the way. You haven't been following anything that we've been talking about here. You don't know what this program has been about. Excellent. Um, but they have been following your story, and they've seen what's, what happened to you the other day. Can I just ask you, what was that moment like when you stood up? Because it was an extraordinary reaction. What, can you put into words what that felt like, that moment? It just felt as though all the love in the world had been thrown at me. and. It was completely overwhelming. I, 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 you saw I couldn't really handle it because it felt as though that love had always been available to me, but I kind of pushed it away or, or mistreated it somehow by not letting it into my life. Mm -hmm. It's as if my spectrum has just been broadened. You know, it is as if I have this barometer of emotion from really, really bad to really, really good, and that high end has just been extended. You, you said to me, um, 
that day after we'd sort of finished filming, you said this has to be something supernatural because it wasn't anything well, that felt you, you could yeah. you could explain. Technically, as a yeah. <laughs> textbook definition is something unexplained mm. is maybe. No, it's not. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Uh, look, we're going to stop this in just a moment, but I couldn't let that pass. Um, unexplained is not equal to supernatural. That is that is not the case. There are lots of things that we can't explain. In fact, there are lots of things I particularly can't explain because I'm not a physicist. That doesn't mean, therefore, that the answer is supernatural. And um, this is a this is a flaw in her logic that I don't know if this is just recent that happened after or because of this experience because she's suddenly on tv and you know she's not thinking well or if this was a part of her thinking that made her susceptible to this experience thoughts yeah i that's it's a striking answer uh for her to give given how we were prepped uh, as to what type of person she was coming into this um but it, one thing I'll, I'll uh i'll mention is do you notice how supernatural gets put into the unexplained you never see people put supernatural into the explained mm. so you know it's always in that space where it can't be um uh falsified uh so to speak right uh but you you bring up the great point and there's how do you differentiate something supernatural from something that's natural but yet unexplained and that's the type of 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 conversation we need to have so that we can actually be on the proactive uh, lookout for what actually is supernatural. And I, in all my years, have yet to have anyone give me anything other than unexplained to, 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 uh, to de define supernatural. So we might come back to this in a couple of minutes where uh, we're about to finish. And I, I didn't want to break the the climactic build up here. I just yeah. I couldn't let that go. Supernatural, but again, yeah. because I don't believe in a supernatural, I'm still searching to so identify that source. It must yeah, set totally, up yeah. conflicts, some conflicts yeah, in your mind. Totally so you're still sort of searching through that by the sound of it. <laughs> still mulling over what happened nearly a week ago. Yeah. Excellent. I feel duty bound to make sure that you don't leave this experience with a with a religious belief that I've sort of just given you, um, I think, but as I think the emotions and I think everything you've taken from it is hugely positive, but it's important to me that you can separate the emotions that you felt and everything positive that you've taken from this from, uh, from a religious belief. Mm -hmm. So let me explain to you what I did. I elicited feelings from you, emotions from you, but getting you to imagine a perfect father, um, uh, getting you to imagine a sense of awe, and as I asked you about those things, as you kind of internally found those states, as I asked you what it would feel like, I started tapping on the table, and in the same way that if you listen to a song, it can take you back to, um, I you know, I broke remember up. the tapping. I'm you remember the tapping? Is he bored? Is it bored? No, far from it. But every time you did that, every time I tapped, I was starting to associate those feelings with the tap. Like, as I say, when you listen to a song and you've broken up with somebody and then you yeah. hear the song again years later, it makes you immediately feel terrible. Exactly the same idea. And I was building on that throughout. I also introduced um, the idea of faith to you as a positive thing. I started to reframe it as something that could be positive. I introduced the idea of agency in your life, the idea that there could be a plan. These were subtle things. I never mentioned God, but I was bit by bit just giving you these, uh, these thoughts and feelings one at a time and stealing all the emotions with this tap. And then when I stood up, I said you can take all of those images in your head and I sort of, I did this, I sort of showed you them in front of you like that so that if you were to stand up, you'd actually walk through them. 
And I said that some people do stand <laughs> up and feel this, uh, and I tapped, I tapped on the table, leaving you with that suggestion, which is entirely unconscious. Mm. So it's not something you'd be processing or thinking about. You wouldn't know I was doing it, but your unconscious is picking up on all of those things. When you did stand up, it simply triggered off those emotions that I'd given you, all in one very powerful moment, which is the experience, pretty much, of a religious conversion. Me telling you that now, does that devalue it? It has added a kind of artificial element to it for me now. Okay. Um, but again, I suppose inducing an emotional reaction to something, if it's through external influences, it's always artificial in a way, you know. If it's from listening to an amazing piece of music, that's an mm. emotional stimulus that's come from an artificial source. So exactly. it's, it's all... Um, the emotions are real, that's yeah. the point. It's just important to me that you don't feel it has to be attached to something supernatural or superstitious because it wasn't. Okay. And it's not even like it came from me. It certainly didn't come from God, it just it came from you. And those are real, perfectly real, real emotions that as you said have expanded now your emotional repertoire and things that you can now carry with you for the rest of your life but you don't need to attach them to anything superstitious. It's important that I leave you with that knowledge so you're not being fooled by anything. Right, that's, that's important. But Natalie, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you for doing this and thank you for coming in. Thank you. Um, okay. So that will do it for that. So let me uh, add just a little bit of color to this. I'm, I'm not claiming to be a Darren Brown, and I've never been a Darren Brown. I've never been that good <clears throat> at people manipulation. And, and I know the word manipulation has a negative connotation. I use it intentionally because it does have a negative connotation. I have learned manipulation tactics from the time that I was a baby, since from the time before language. I'm very good at manipulating people if I want to. I've made a lot of money in my life. Not all of it I'm terribly proud of manipulating people into buying things that they don't want. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, if you're going to make it in that business, you have to be very good at that. Uh, you, you have to learn fairly early on. The product doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter what the product is. The, the product is the person. The product is you. Um, and so I, I can walk into a sales job, not know anything about the product, just get a list of uh, people, and I can sell. Now, once again, is, is that something I'm proud of? I don't know. I'm good at it, <laughs> which, which doesn't, is not my proudest stuff, but I've paid more rent that way than with other stuff that I've done in my life. I've uh, been a musician um, and I, I've made a little money doing that. I've uh, been a writer. I've done quite a bit of freelancing. Uh, worst money I've ever made, but I think the most fulfilling uh, job I've had. I love writing. <clears throat> but the most money I've ever made consistently is in emotionally and intellectually manipulating people into doing things that they didn't initially want to do. So I can tell you that I have seen this kind of reaction, which is another reason why I, I think that we haven't seen any Christians come out with saying, ah, she's just an actress. I've evoked this kind of reaction. Um, let me show you who it's really easy to, to do this with. Teens 
at church camps. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you leave your teen or, you know, young person between 12 and 15 with me for a week, they're going to have a conversion experience. A lot of parents bring their kids to church camps because they want them to have a conversion experience because they're Christians and they've got troubled teens and, you know, it's church camp or jail. Um, <laughs> I can fix them up. <clears throat> And other uh, parents just drop their kids off at church camp because it's it's a week of camp. It's cheaper than, you know, some other camp. And, you know, they, they, they get a week off from the kids. I, I've seen all kinds, uh, done all kinds. And I, I, can, I can give you that reaction. I've seen that reaction uh, as it's been uh, done by other people. It's quite real. It's quite powerful. I can't say that I've ever had that kind of reaction. I guess a part of me has always been a little bit uh, cynical of that sort of thing. But I've seen it. I've caused it. Uh, and when people have that kind of reaction, they are convinced that they are dealing with something other than you and something other than themselves. Uh, pushing them toward whatever direction it is you were manipulating them to go in the first place. And you don't have to be doing it intentionally, although intentionality helps. Uh, the techniques don't matter. You can use different techniques, but it works time and time and time and time again. And the thing that I can't seem to impress upon Christians when I talk to them on, on boards like 4S is, look, I hear you. I believe you. I, I understand that you've had an experience, but please take it from a manipulator. That experience does not necessarily mean that something supernatural is happening. It's very natural. And the human animal uh, is built to feel the kinds of things that you are feeling and built to be deceived by the cause of what's going on. We are made for that kind of manipulation. And um, that's the hardest thing to convince people of. They, Christians, what they know who Darren Brown is. They've watched this video too. And mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, well, those are those people over there. Those are those weak-minded people who let Darren Brown manipulate them. But I had a real experience from the Holy Spirit. It, no matter how many frauds you show them, and no matter how much you reveal how the trick is done, they are still, the, the internal sensation is so strong, they still insist that theirs is real. And I, I don't know how to break through that. Anyway, yeah, what, and are, I, and what I, are some I of your thoughts? I suspect, yeah, I suspect there's a couple of things going on there, right? I think one is not wanting to admit being a dupe, right? Mm. You know, it, it, no one wants to be, yeah, I got fooled, I got tricked. Uh, it's embarrassing. They don't want to look like there's someone who was either, you know, easily fooled or weak minded or what have you. So there's that strong incentive to keep it real. Uh, but I also I also think there's this, you know, this God of the gaps thing going on, too. Right. You can just as easily push back where God lives here. So you can acknowledge the natural human psychological factors that Darren Brown is putting on display here, mm -hmm. but say, well, those were planted there by God. He did that so that I could find them. So, you know, you got this inevitable pushing back of the envelope uh, into, into, again, the more unexplained areas so that you can leave open that door for supernatural. So 
you know, I, I have a feeling that that's kind of the two strong things going on that, that keep these things alive uh, in believers. But so, yes, but it still doesn't work if, if, you know, the more rational parts of the brain are engaged because believers are also aware of the fact that people, that Christians even, convert to Islam. They, they convert to Islam and they feel just as strong a sense of the supernatural tugging at them when they do. How, how do you explain that? It, it becomes special pleading to say, well, if someone converts from Christianity to something else, that's just human agency. But if they convert to Christianity, that's the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. At that point, it the the attempt to sell yourself on the magic feels disingenuous. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And that should be powerful evidence uh, against what they're pitching. Uh, again, I suspect what they do is acknowledge that the experience was probably real. Where they made the mistake was the downstream human um, justification or the explication. So the mistake they made was thinking that this experience came from Allah. The, the mistake wasn't that the experience didn't exist. It's they made a human mistake of ascribing it wrong. They ascribed it to the wrong deity or what have you. Mm -hmm. That's where I think they can try to self-justify that theirs is real. Okay. Um, look, I'm going to let that stand. I, I don't buy it. Uh, because, once again, conversion, <laughs> as, as I mentioned at the first and, and threatened to come back to at the end, so here I am. Conversion has been happening for a long time, and it happens in lots of situations, and they can be very profound, life-changing ways. Conversion happens all the time. We only invoke the Spirit of God when it's a conversion to Christianity. And, and we pretend like no one could make such a uh, serious uh, and determined life change without the help of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know when we give it a few seconds thought, that's simply not true. Pe people make uh, life-changing decisions all the time that don't always have, uh, have anything to do with religion. So, yeah, okay, it just feels like Christians are looking for some reason to insert the supernatural, where if you just take religion out of it, there would be no supernatural. Same circumstance, but that's not supernatural. But we need the supernatural to reside in our religion somehow, and it just feels like we're looking, grasping at at straws to protect uh, our our religion from outside scrutiny. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work when you think about it. Furthermore, I would ask the Christian to just consider, just reconsider, why the heck is it so important that this be protected from outside scrutiny? Why is your experience with God some kind of private qualia that can never be fully explained and fully examined? Um, why must it be that way? But if you do think it has to be that way, what makes you think that you are actually truly qualified to understand the inner workings of your own emotional state? Yeah, 
I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think, I think this idea that our beliefs are supposed to be sacred or something to be defended or something to be proud of. I think that's almost one of the first attitudes you have to jettison because what I want my beliefs to be are true. Now, I'm not obviously going to be guaranteed of that. I'm, I'm using probability. I'm using incomplete information. I, I have to believe some things just to move myself through the day. Mm-hmm. But this idea that beliefs should be uh, protected or sacred or beyond examination or stress testing, you've got to get rid of that idea first. And then you'd really be surprised to find how unsupported a lot of these things are when you actually take away, you know, give yourself permission to poke holes at all the different foundations that are holding up the belief. And you'll realize how weak they are. I have made my closing statement, so any final thoughts belong to you? I mean, I, this was this was a great, I, I'm really glad you invited me for this one. This was a great video. I was obviously uh, expecting uh, to be listening to a sermon with you, but I think this was really valuable. Uh, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, what I'm hoping is that people will take away some of the messages that we uh, put forward and, and actually maybe rewatch this on their own and really try to, to understand how powerful uh, the human psychology is and how it really can explain a lot more things than they think it can. So I've got a, a sermon that I had pulled up for you <laughs> that, that, <laughs> for this uh, conversation. So uh, perhaps the next time uh, we will do that sermon, it is still on the subject of conversion. It's a little bit more traditional, but I, when I heard it, I thought it was a little bit sterile and I thought that this actually does a better job at laying the groundwork so that when we do listen to some other sermons about conversion, and I do want to explore uh, that idea with you a little bit more, uh, we can go back to that sermon and uh, bring some of these insights with us. Thank you so much for being on the show. And as for the rest of you, the next show will be with Clint Haycock. We will see you next time. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you, sir. And that is the show. It was fantastic. It wasn't one of those uh, laugh-a-minute shows. We will have those, I promise. But once I realized that this was the right subject to talk to you about, and once this video came up, I knew that this